Well, it says in the paragraph uh, that they very seldom get applications for a national. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no Mr. Alvin Lee and company ushering us into another two-hour get-together here, the Friday edition on the 121-22 date stamp show, and it's the uh, show when we have Britton Winters, uh, old-time good friend and, and co-host, really, he's not even a guest anymore and uh we get into things uh, many times get into things spiritual and so here we go and it's roger sales with you as uh, half of the co-host anyway brent winters is along and uh we're on the Eurofolk radio network and happy to be here in the name of our get together as the radio ranch so brent welcome again to another friday edition here i guess he's there he was there a minute ago there he is yeah, I'm here. Slight delay, but I'm here, and and uh, I can't say I'm cocked and loaded for bear, but I am. Uh, I'm available, I suppose. You know, I had a neighbor. Well, actually, she was more than a neighbor. She was a a lady that that never married. She born in the same house she died in 102 years later. Wow. The house was starting to fall down by that time, but uh, her dad had built it, and we farmed her place, and uh, I was uh, related to her from two directions, but remotely. It's one of those kind of deals where we live, people are related, and uh, we called her aunt, Aunt Hazel, and we farmed her place, and she had a life estate in it, and her brothers, Nim, and their descendants then got it after, but they gave her a life estate after she was passed away, they got it, but... In the meantime, uh, in the meantime, uh, I discovered a lot of things about life from her, and one of the things I discovered was that she was a a member of Eastern Star, and she was also a hard shell Baptist. Well, that's uh, quite an unusual combination, of course. It is. But of course, being a member of Eastern Star, she was involved in paganism, and. Um, that's, uh, of course, the female organization of the Masonic Lodge. And being a hard-shell Baptist, she was a hyper-Calvinist. And she went to Hardbell, Hardbell, Hardshell Baptist Church there out in the country. I went with her a few times because I had an interest in such things. And there were a few hard-shell Baptists around. You know, Abe Lincoln was raised as a hard-shell Baptist. A fascinating detail of history down in Pigeon Creek, that's where he was introduced to church. He was big enough to go to church, and he he went to him and his family went to Hardshell Baptist Church. And the Baptist churches and the Hardshell Baptist churches, and more particularly the um, the uh, Two Seeds Doctrine Baptist churches pervaded um, the Ohio Valley from Kentucky northward into uh, lower Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and on into Missouri. Now, I don't know what happened to them after that, but they were around there. And uh, the two-seed theory was part of their doctrine. Uh, there, were a lot, there was a lot of that in it. Not that all hard-shelled Baptists 
were two-seed theory folk. Of course, the two-seed theory had to do with the idea that there were two races called humans. There is the race of Adam, and then there is the race of uh, the devil himself that he had fathered with our grandma Eve. Now, I've looked at that pretty closely, and I, I can't wring that doctrine out of the the Hebrew words of the creation account. I have read and listened to the teachers of it in recent times, and I see where they're going, but there are too many hiatuses in their logic and in their etymology of the words that, in other words, it's, it's not sure. It can't be a sure doctrine, although there are a lot of people that, that follow it. But what I noticed, for example, with this uh, gal that I knew so well, she was, uh, she was very much a part of my life. And uh, thinking back on it, I'm glad that God put her into my life because we would always work with her when dad, when we were little and dad was farming, we were too little to drive tractors. She'd have us out in the field with her picking up rocks. Uh, that was our job. And she'd hire us to weed her, her strawberry patch and, uh, of course, we'd eat more strawberries than we were worth when we did that if she wasn't looking. <laughs> that was a good deal for us, doing other things. But what I began to see was, and I have a case right now that has this kind of a fact pattern to it. It's a fact pattern about a, a motorcycle gang in a rural, a rural county out in the middle of godforsaken nowhere only has a couple of deputies in the sheriff department. The courthouse is in a little tiny town, smaller than, well, it's just a settlement, all it is. But the motorcycle gang moved in there and decided they were going to run their operation out of that county because, because there wasn't much law enforcement there, and it was remote. It was far away from everything. Well, in this case, a man was murdered. Uh, it was a setup. A man that was of means was murdered, and he was older. And uh, I don't want to go into more detail than that because I think I would reveal where the case was and what happened. But the pattern is that when people want to join these motorcycle gangs, they are often initiated. Of course, the motorcycle gangs are uh, making money selling illegal. Uh, drugs and uh, and hookers. That's what they have, illegal drugs and hookers and probably other things I don't know about. But that's what they have, and they run their operations in places that are often heavily Mormon, by the way, heavily Mormon. Uh, they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't want to say that. might give people the wrong impression as though Jesus Christ approves of such organizations. He doesn't. But in this case, they were involved with Mormons, and um, they were involved in stealing, trying to steal a lot of money. Well, what these motorcycle gangs do is money, property, lots, lots, more than a fellow can even imagine. But what the motorcycle gangs do, they won't let people join. Of course, people want to join. Young men want to join and older men. Well, they won't let them join unless they prove that they're not a government snitch or a government mole, a state or federal. So the only way they've come up with to do that is to tell the initiate he has to kill somebody. 
and has to do it in front of other gang members. That way, they know they have the evidence that he's not a government agent. So that's what happened in this case. They give orders to, to him to go kill him, and they have some full-fledged members that aren't on probation go with them to witness the dirty deed, and uh, they, uh, they kill people. But they're at the beck and call, at the beck and call of, of the commander, so to speak. It's a martial law kind of an organization. Well, I got to thinking about it, and I said, well, what is it? Of course, I'm thinking about this lady that lived to be 102, who I very close to growing up and still admire, even though she took pagan point of view about some things. I still, um, I, I look at her and I try to discern truth. And the thing that I was thinking about this morning was these people trying to get into these motorcycle gangs. What is it they're looking for? Well, it's a drive. <laughs> the drive is um, they want to identify with other men. They don't want to be alone. They want to gain a certain identity so much so they will cover their bodies with tattoos. Uh, tattoos are an effort to gain an identity. Uh, it may not be a good one. Matter of fact, it can't be. No good identity is going to be in a tattoo. It's the law according to God. But that's what they do. And in this case, uh, that was the downfall of one of the men because tattoos become strong identification marks. Right. And if you're dumb enough to get one, you've got an identification mark that makes you an easy target for people that want to get you, whether for the right reason or the wrong reason. Uh, it just seems to me that it's not smart, but um, that's what happened in this case. But people, all people, all of us, every one of us, we want to have a certain identity. That we're moved to do that. Uh, whether or not we're moved by the spirit of right or the spirit of wrong, we're going to do it. And we'll go to great lengths to get it done, like these fellows trying to join these motorcycle gangs. They'll go to great lengths to identify with the gang. They'll even kill people, not to mention a lot of other stuff. And there's nobody, uh, no member of Adam's race that can escape this desire to be a part of a group. It's always there. And if it's easy to become a part of the group, then the membership with the group is worthless and people won't seek to do it. I mean, even the United States Marine Corps, they try to draw people in. They say, you can be a part of this group, but do you have what it takes? And we're going to prove you up. Come to boot camp. We'll see if you have what it takes to be a part of this group. Um, Chuck Yeager, supposedly, I don't know if he was the author, probably a ghostwriter, but wrote a book called The Right Stuff. Well, have you got the right stuff to be in this group? If you go to prison, if you go to prison, men divide into gangs, um, and rightly so in, in, that, in that environment, and to belong to one of them, uh, you've got to prove that you're a certain kind of a person. If you're behind the wire, you can't just say, I want to join. No, they won't let you do that. And rightly so, again, in that environment. that's uh, There's nothing going to happen right in a prison, so... I don't blame men for doing that in prison, but they will divide up, form their own governments, their own way of doing things, and if you want to belong, you've got to prove yourself. In other words, men, not women as much, no, no, but men have to have an initiation process, and they have to belong. 
And it even gets bigger than that, because if a society denies young men a rite of passage into manhood that is tangible and seeable, then they will find one. And that's what happens with these motorcycle gangs. That's what happens with the Marine Corps. That's what happens when boys play on the football team. It happens all over. It's constantly happening. But our particular culture and the evil empire, the useful idiots of it, have done all that they can to remove from us the proper passages into manhood. Manhood must be destroyed, says the evil empire. Why? Because God has made his trust arrangement, the old timers called it his covenant, with the male of the species. And the female of the species participates in that through the male, unless there is no male in her life. And in that case, no father, no husband. Then God puts her in a special category and says, you better not offend her. And that's very important and fundamental part of the covenant of God. But men, the evil empire works unceasingly to deny young men rite of passage, the proper rite of passage, according to God's book. According to God's book, the proper rite of passage into manhood, among other more, uh, uh, other lesser things, but the proper rite of manhood is to be an active member of the militia of his country, an active member of the militia of his country. And in our own country, we call that an active member of the militia of the several states. You're a member of the militia because it's something you're born into. It's not something government gives you. It's who you are. And you're born, and if you're born male, you're a member of the militia, but you're not an active member until you reach, according to the Bible, the age of 20 years. And that's something that the whole scheme, the whole arrangement of the militia clauses of our Constitution, all of the common law details that the Constitution does not detail, but that inform every phrase and word of our four militia statutes of our Constitution and the militia statutes of our several states. All of that is bent toward a young man looking forward, looking forward to doing that, and also fulfilling the responsibilities of purchasing at his own expense the weapon that the first militia clause of the Constitution uh, says his state has authority, or doesn't have authority. As a matter of fact, it's an obligation under the Constitution that the state government set the kind of weapon that he is to have and the amount of ammunition he is to have and uh, the training details of how he is to be trained is the responsibility of the United States Congress. They are to put forth the manual of arms or whatever else they think the training must be so it will be uniform throughout the several states. The states further, each one of them, are to appoint the officers, not the federal government, not the general government, or to appoint officers according to how they think it should be done, whether they think that each county or each township should elect their officers and petty officers, or whether they should do it, the, the state should do it from the top down. That's their business. But the Constitution clearly denies the general government in Washington, D.C. from that 
powerful, powerful control. And then, of course, the young man has his responsibilities, and he is to fulfill that. And that is the proper and the biblical rite of passage. Say biblical, yes. The book of Numbers is all about two things. Well, it's about one thing in two categories. It's about martial law, and it's about, foremost, the militia of the 12 several tribes of Israel, just as we have the militia of the 50 several states of the United States. The book of Numbers is about that. There are also passages in the book of Deuteronomy about that, detailing how the militia is supposed to work. The militia. Now, in the Bible, the word for militia is am, A-M. And the word am is translated most often in the Older Testament with the English word people, people. And that's significant because there have been many men that were instrumental in putting together our own, our own country way back over 200 years ago who point blank said that the militia are the people. Well, that's biblical words. Of course, I don't know why the, tra- well, the people was the militia to the translators of the Bible. And uh, every time that word occurs in the Bible, it always refers to an arm, armed band of men, uh, most often referring to the militia of the 12 several tribes of Israel. When you get to the Newer Testament, the, it's the Greek tongue, but the phrase is still the same, and the militia of Israel referred to often. The Newer Testament refers to it very often. That is the proper rite of passage. Men will seek a proper rite of passage in the manhood. They want desperately, this is the way God has wired men, they want desperately to make that rite of passage. In the manhood, women, their rite of passage is into womanhood. That's a different, that's a different animal altogether, a horse of a different color. Maybe that's the way to say it. But... A woman is. A man must prove himself. A woman is. God made her that way. She starts that way. She stays that way. But God, and God has wired her that way, but God has wired the man that he must prove himself to feel like he has met the mark. The man is the hunter. He is the competitive one in that way. And to turn that around, with evil empire, of course, wants to, and they're trying hard to, and they're very successful. Confusion of the sexes. Let's not confuse it. Well, I make a big point about this because the fun, fundamental of all government, all this political BS, bottom sediment, that comes out of the news, scratching and biting and fussing and fighting and weeping and gnashing of teeth about politics is going to get us anywhere because that's hacking at the branches of a diseased tree is not hacking at the root. To hack at the root is to distinguish the man from the woman and the rite of passage of the of the male. Back to you, Roger. You know, uh, Brent, down here in South America, they have a uh, tradition for the females called quince cumpleaños. Have you, you remember us talking about this? Vaguely, Roger. Of course, I want you to flesh it out a little. Well, it's when the it's when the female turns fifteen, and uh, I mean, 
families save up for years for the parties and it, it is a big deal uh-huh. okay and it's that kind of like a bar mitzvah for the female and it's called uh, kinsei is 15 and cumpleaños is complete años or birthday so it's 15th birthday kinsei cumpleaños yeah. and uh, they have some really big parties man you'll be you know i remember in argentina i don't see it as much around here because i'm just not in that situation but there they'd have They'd get out there in the street in the afternoon. They're throwing uh, water balloons and raising hell and doing all this stuff. And you just know it's a Kensei Cumpleaños, you know. Yeah, I get it. And then um, the French also do something like that. And uh, down in New Orleans, they, I forget the French word, but I had a friend now deceased whose mother was born down there. And her father was uh, assistant secretary of the Navy. And so he was up in the ranks a little bit uh, under, I believe it was Hoover, one of those, no, see, it was uh, Coolidge. I believe it was Calvin Coolidge, one of those two. And uh, he owned a big shipyard down there. And when she came of age, whatever age that was down there as a woman, then they have uh, a big announcement. It's something like, it means coming out, a coming out. And of course, she wears a big, beautiful dress. And she appears at the party, and she's the center of attention. And uh, I probably, in New Orleans, it's the more uppity classes that do that still, I've heard. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's, not a, it's a French thing, but other people that live down there do it. Now, this gal, her father was an immigrant from Germany. I forget his name. But he became good friends with the fellow that became president, and then he got this appointment because he started to, you know, those Germans are big on engineering. He started a shipyard down there, building ships. But no, we recognize, or in some cultures, they make a point of recognizing, but there's no proving. That's what I'm trying to point out. With a female, there is a recognition of her adulthood often. But there's no demand of proof. You know, I remember reading about these people in the South Sea Islands, and they're called the tower divers. And uh, they, these men, when they get big, get big enough, they prove themselves by diving head first off these 100-foot towers. They're called land divers, not, not into water. They, they dive toward the land, but they have these... these um, these vines attached to their legs that are measured just right, and just before their head hits the ground with, the, with this 100-foot dive, um, they're stopped. They've got these vines attached to their ankles, and they're trained to do this from the time they're little children. They stand on their father's shoulders when they're just big enough to barely stand, and he lets them jump, and he catches them by the legs. That's their rite of passage, and if they don't do that, they don't achieve manhood. You know, the Sioux Indians, the Lakotas and the others, and the... Uh, North Central United States uh, have what they call the Sundance. Pretty brutal thing. You know, they put those sticks through their pectoral. Well, they don't do it anymore. They just put it through the skin now. They used to put the sticks through their pectoral muscles and rip them apart. Throw themselves back with body weight on them pec muscles and stare at the sun for hours until they go into a opium-like daze and see a vision and throw themselves back and don't eat for days and on and on, proving themselves. Now, down in Australia, the men prove themselves by doing a walkabout. A walk, the, the Aborigines, I'm not talking about the white boys, I'm talking about the black boys down there. 
that the Aborigines do what's called a walkabout. That means they go out into the bush naked as a jaybird, and they uh, have to stay for a certain length of time. They're not given anything to take with them, and they have to survive for X number of days. Then they come back, and then they have the declaration that they've proven themselves as a man. Well, that's what the evil empire wants to destroy. But the Bible gives that that uh, act, and it's not brutal. It's something a man just grows into, but he's got to do certain things. He's got to obtain a weapon at his own expense. That's the common law rule of the militia. People often point to Switzerland and say, well, they've got a militia over there. Now, it's pretty close, but they don't because the government provides their weapons. Now, I've heard tell the government gives the weapon to the to the man that uh, when he retires after his service as a member of what, for a better word, we call the Swiss militia, he's given his weapon when he gets old enough, 45 or 50, however old he is when he gets out of it. It's not a bad, a bad way of doing things, but he doesn't provide his own weapon. That's done at taxpayer's expense, and that's a very dangerous thing to do because that gives the government more control. That's why the militia of the several states in common law didn't do that and doesn't do that. It's time that we revive the militia. Well, we should have done it 175 years ago when it faded into oblivion. Just the story said about that time that his great fear was that we would ignore the militia clauses, not just the Second Amendment, the Fourth Militia Clause, but that we would ignore them. And in doing so, we would deny and deprive ourselves of not only the palladium, but the reality of our freedom. We would deny ourselves not only of the palladium, but the reality of our freedom. The palladium is the sign of something. It's an ancient word, not an English word. But the reality, that's the palladium. In other words, the militia clauses are the sign of our freedom. Okay, we got it. But are we using them? Do we pay any attention to them? And just as Joseph's story said 175 years ago, his great fear was that we would increasingly ignore them. And that is exactly what has happened. Now, the only one of the militia clauses that anybody ever heard of is Second Amendment. Well, without the other militia clauses, the Second Amendment has no activity. The Second Amendment is the foundation of the other three militia clauses. And in, in other words, as long as men are armed at their own expense, then the other three militia clauses will work. But if men are not armed at their own expense, the other three militia clauses are worthless. And the other three militia clauses are the militia themselves, the people, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, ordain and establish this constitution. Well, providing for the common defense, the people, we the people, the militia, are the ones that authorize the constitution. Not enough is said about that. People forever and unendingly talk about the framers and the founders. Those fellows, I don't hesitate to say it, were political hacks. Political hacks. That means that they repeated back to the people what the people, the militia, was thinking. 
If you're going to be successful in politics, you tell people, you put into words what they are thinking, and they will support you. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And when I say political hack, that doesn't mean they're stupid. That doesn't mean they didn't believe it. Sometimes they did, sometimes they did it, but they're not the ones that are not the ones that ratified the Constitution of the United States. They're not the ones that say yes or no. The people, who's that? The militia of the several states. They're the ones that said, we're the militia of the several states, and we want to establish the common defense. We want to provide for the common defense. People get that turned around. Promote the general welfare, divide provide for the common defense. They want to provide for the general welfare and promote the common defense. They're just, just the opposite. No, no, no. You, how do you provide for the common defense? The militia of the several states. There is no other way. As long as we have a militia of the several states, I don't care what kind of a bozo is sitting in the White House. We're not going to lose our freedoms. If there is no militia of the several states, if it's not an active matter, if the four militia clauses are not for front and center in our understanding of constitutional common law government, that's what that is, then we won't have our freedoms. And when the, the, when the, when the Chinese invade, they'll roll over us because we don't have that understanding. We don't have a right of passage into manhood. We don't have the confidence, therefore, to know that we have followed God's, God's process into manhood. And therefore... We are prey for pagan, ugly, demonically driven people. This is not a joke. This is ultimate. You know, when the demons broke forth, when the Japs broke forth, I should say, like demons from hell, our boys went over and whooped them. But they didn't whoop them, of course, by themselves. I mean, they had the whole country and the industrial force of the country behind them. But it was brutal. And if it happens again, if they break forth like demons from hell, and that's who they are, they are controlled by demons. You want to know who's controlled by demons? All you got to do, well, there's only two ways that demons can control men. They either do it from the inside of the man or from the outside. One can be just as bad as the other. Demon possession from the inside, demonization, as the Greek New Testament puts it, from the inside, oh, that that'll really screw a guy up, and uh, that, that happens. But being controlled by a demon or demons or the evil one himself from the outside, well, that happens all around us nonstop. And it is something he's attempting to do to all of us, and he's good at it, nonstop. You want to know, so there's two ways, but you want to know, and he does it by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain glory of life. There are only three options he has, and he's very good at it. And his useful idiots are good at helping him. And he orchestrates them well. But you want to know who the demon-controlled people are, just look at their government. Look at their government. You want to know who the demon-controlled people are in a religious organization? Look at their government. You only have two options for government, the law of the land and the law of the city, whether it's a government of country, a government of religious organization, a church, Islam, Judaism, Romanism, Mormonism, every ism and schism that we wish was wasms. Look at their government. If their government is a dictatorship of sorts, well, look at the Baptist churches. Many of them are dictatorships. Matter of fact, that's the tradition of Baptist churches. Look at the Assemblies of God, fundamentally dictatorships. Look at the Pentecostal churches, dictatorships. Look at all 
the megachurches on TV, dictatorships. Look at the Roman church and the priest dictatorships. Those people are controlled by demons. How do I know? Because if there's a single will controlling a government, that's what the evil empire wants here in America. If there's a single will controlling the government, the devil himself likes that because all he has to control, he's not God. He can't be everywhere at once. All he has to control is that single will, whether it be the single will of a single man or woman or some combination thereof, <laughs> or the single will of a legislative body. Uh, several persons combining their wills into a single will called legislation. But the evil empire wants that. That's how the evil empire controls. Through Look at the governments. Who are controlled by demons? The ones that are governments of fundamental single will. Our common law government is not a government of single will. It's a government of separation of powers, co-equal branches, none of the three branches, having the authority at law to control the other. And then also the jury, not even a part of government, but having the final word in individual cases, individual instances from whose decision there is no appeal. That's our common law government. That's a wholly different thing. No single will. We don't take an oath here. If you're a militiaman and they bring you on to um, the service of the government uh, in Washington, D.C., if the president calls you out, you don't take an oath to obey the orders of the president without question. No, you take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. You take an oath to support law. There's another grand distinction between the law of the land and the law of the city. Germany, Hitler, did a lot of good things. He put his country back together, but he was controlled by demons in the end because he was a government of a single will. He was a government of a single will. Is it any mystery that the Roman church is the largest pedophilia organization in the world has been for centuries? Why? It's a government of a single will. Is it any mystery that the communist countries are slaughtering people for the organs in their bodies all over the world? Well, yeah, it's a government of a single will, but uh, that single will is easy to control. You control that single will. The devil controls that single will. He controls 1.5 billion people to a great degree. That's the way the devil runs things. He looking. You know, you go to the Bible, you go to Isaiah, you go to Ezekiel, you see the descriptions of the emperor, the government of a single will of Babylon. And the prophet is talking about the emperor and what he does and who he is, and then the, the, the narrative morphs into this weird description of this creature with jewels all over his body, and it's clear he's talking about the devil himself, Satan himself, who controlled the, the emperor of Babylon, who controlled millions of people. Why? By the government of a single will. Back to you, Roger. You know, Brent, I was listening to uh, Rents the other night. There was a gal on there from a hospital. It was in the administrative part. And she was talking about what they're doing. I'm talking about the Chinese and the organ harvesting. They're doing that here. Uh -huh. They're doing it here big time now with this uh, with this yeah. COVID stuff. They're running people in. They diagnose them, so they get money for the diagnosis. They get money for putting them on a ventilator. They get money if they die of COVID and all, all that stuff. 100000 plus uh -huh. per patient. They're also but, doing it to children, too. Yes. 
but this is what this is what shocked me she was saying do you have any this is her statement now not mine okay you know how much the human body is worth to these people it's it's a i'm gonna tell you right now it's astounding 65 million dollars well i say point blank roger whatever any of my listeners or our listeners i should say here do do not sign your body over as an organ donor do not and don't encourage other people to do it i know personally of a man got out of the marine corps perfect specimen of a man young handsome uh ambitious intelligent everything he did he had to excel you know he did more pull-ups than anybody in his unit he was a linguist he went to that school and learned some obscure uh language semitic language from sand land over there on the other side of the world so he could interpret for the supposedly for the marine corps and uh, he got out and he was in college and he was excelling making straight a's and all of a sudden he ends up dead in a snowbank well most unusual circumstances and within 45 minutes it was declared it was declared a suicide and his organs were harvested. Yep. His bones, even his bones were taken out of his body. I went to uh. the funeral. I could tell something was wrong. He didn't have any bones of his major bones were taken out. Mm. That's big business. Yeah. And now I she, didn't realize worth millions, but doesn't she was uh, she was saying that she named a couple of the companies or at least one of the companies that circle like vultures and swoop in when uh, when somebody dies on this. It was uh, kind of sobering, actually. Did anybody else hear that the other night? Yeah, I actually saw a um, post about it and it broke it down what everything was worth. Amazing, really. Yeah, it's sick. Uh, and that's what they're doing. They're running you in. Uh, do you realize that, uh, was it two years ago, maybe three years ago, Brent, there was 50 to 60 million cases of the flu? You know how many there were last year? Uh, 20, I mean, 2,300. <laughs> yeah. It's, the only thing that's going to change things is coming back to the fundamentals. And the only way to come back to the fundamentals is to have a change of heart. And the only way to have a conclusive and terminal change of heart is through the new birth. There is no other way. And that means that the, the remnant, I call them the leftovers because that's what the Bible, that's what the word really means. The leftovers are the only hope of any society. There is a special responsibility to the leftovers. Um, and all the change that can come in our own country that could be good has to come through the leftovers and the new birth is not something you do you cannot make yourself born no more than you could make yourself born the first time as a matter of fact the first time you were born you resisted birth it wasn't something you you wanted your mother struggled to the point of near death to make it happen who struggles as kipling said uh, to death for each life beneath her breast is not distracted by doubt or pity and cannot be swerved by fact or jest. I don't know about you folk. I've been in the presence of women in hard labor. There, that's no time. They won't, they won't take a joke at that time, and they won't take any orders if they don't want to. That's their time. 
you get out of their way and you let them do what God is telling them to do and moving them to do by the strongest of internal instincts. The baby doesn't have anything in it, a passive character. And that is the way it is with the new birth. That's God's choice. He gives new birth. And those of you who believe and think are persuaded for whatever reason that God has born you, born you, as they say in the Wabash Valley from above, then you have a duty. You say, well, how can I tell? Well, let's put it this way. If you want to be, you probably are. If you're afraid that you aren't, you also, that's a good sign, you probably are. A nice sight for authority that, of course, the Bible makes those kinds of statements. I recall the story of John Knox. John Knox, the leader of the, uh, (laughs) he didn't point himself, he became the leader of the Reformation in Scotland. And his mother-in-law constantly bothered him and saying, John, 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 I don't think I'm born from above. I don't think I am. I'm worried the devil, he's after me. He's after me. And freaking out, having emotional problems. He finally said to her, he said, look, do you feel like the devil is going after you as a roaring lion, trying to devour you? She said, that's exactly it. That's what the Bible says, that the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he said to her then, well, if you're afraid of that and you believe the devil is seeking to devour you, well, then he hadn't devoured you yet. That means you're okay. You're still kicking. You're still alive. You don't want him to devour you. See, it all comes down to check your desires. What do you really want in the deepest part of of your heart of hearts, the heart inside your heart of your being? What is it you want? Do you want to be God's man or woman? If that's what you want, then that's a good sign that you are. Now comes the struggle. Now comes the battle. Now comes the fulfillment of your life when you're doing things that are worthwhile and you begin to know it. And it'll come slow. It'll come hard. It'll come through hardship. Just like a baby growing up, there are a lot of joyful times with the child growing up, and there are a lot of, lot of discipline times, and the Father in heaven is a perfect Father who disciplines you perfect, and he will bring you to perfection. Don't be saddened by any of that. No matter how hard your whooping is, and it can get pretty hard, Operation Woodshed is not pleasant. I remember as a little boy in church, went to a little church out in the country because we lived out in the sticks on the other side of the creek. And the name of the church was White Oak Church because it was in a, next to a little ravine where there were a lot of, a lot of white oak trees. And uh, we had two outhouses on outside, one for the men and one for the women. And the men had built an arbor in front of both of them so that when you went in the, you went behind this arbor, of course, in the wintertime, it didn't, It didn't work because the arbor didn't have any leaves on it, but it was still pretty brushy. But you go into either one of the outhouses if you had to make a trip to the outhouse. Well, if any, we all sat in the same room. We didn't, the children didn't go off someplace while they had church services. No, we sat propped up between, (laughs) remember heard a guy say this one time, we were propped up between large ladies, you know, like our grandmothers and other large ladies we used to wear those, <laughs> those print dresses with those clogged shoes. And here I am, a little boy, propped up with my, my Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, you know, and my granddad on one side and, or my, and my grandma on the other and her 
No, we didn't do that because the women sat on one side. I, I did that other places, not at church, but uh, men. I'd set up between men or between the, the large ladies on the other side. And if we got to acting up, making noise or fiddling around, I remember my great-grandma, she used to make, she'd take a little chewing gum wrapper and she'd make little hats. She could fold it and make a hat out of it or make a little boat out of it. And she'd try to keep me occupied that way. Or she'd find a bug or a tick or something to get me keep me busy, but she was always searching my hair for ticks. She found one, she'd pull it out, and let me play with it. But <laughs> if we got to acting up, and our parents would <laughs> not terrible. Our parents that was before they had what that stuff they called a disease that ticks carry. I forget what it is, but didn't worry about it much. But if uh, your dad make your dad, if he heard you making noise, my father would come on, he'd snap his fingers like that and snap him a point at me from the aisle in front of the whole church. Well, of course there wasn't about 50 people there at the most, but in front of the whole church, it was embarrassing for a little boy. That means everybody knew what that meant. That means we're going out behind the outhouse and I was going to get my hide down. And that's what would happen. Then children be brought out. And then they, when they come back in, all those little kids would look at them, their faces would be red because they'd been crying. See, <laughs> It was embarrassing. We didn't want that. We need a little more of that but, uh, going on these days. <laughs> no, the truth is, uh, see, this is the other thing that we're missing. We've got this screwy idea that people, that men are born, and they're born in the flesh, that they're fundamentally okay. They're fundamentally good. Even like Rome says, they're a blank slate. They aren't. They have a taint of evil. When you're born from above the second time, what you're born of, that sperm as the of the word of God, as Peter puts it, he used the words, he uses the word sperma to describe the Bible, which is the word sperm in English, which means seed, often translated seed. That is what is born of that is perfect. It's clean. And what is born in by analogy inside of you, when you're born from above, there is no uncleanness in it. And your your body may start to fall apart on the outside, your hair will turn gray and start to disappear. And get kind of, kind of wiry uh, as you get older. But what is born on the inside is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what is on the outside that is getting old, that is born of the flesh of the first birth, begins to fade away. And what is on the inside gets stronger. And the path of the justified man, the man born above, gets stronger and stronger. Born of the spirit, gets stronger and stronger. And in the end, of course, uh, the perfection comes out. And what is born inside of you um, does not sin, says First John. Now, what you've got on the outside, as Paul the Apostle says, in your fleshly members, it continues to hear that old call, that old call of doing the wrong thing. That's what it continues to hear, and it takes a lot of retraining, and you won't be completely retrained as long as you have your flesh, as long as you are you still in that unresurrected body? That's what the Bible says. But there is hope, you see, and you're getting better and better. So being born above is the foundation. A changing of the heart desire is the foundation of changing the government in your country. And it doesn't take everybody to be changed. It takes a critical mass. What's a critical mass? Well, it's not too many. That's what it is. How much... How much strychnine does it take to poison an otherwise clean glass of water? Not much. And it's deadly. And how much 
how much taint of sin in your flesh does it take to eventually destroy your whole body? Not much, just a taint. And how much faith, and faith is a gift of God, does it take to make you reverse that process and start going the other way? Uh, Just uh, faith that Jesus Christ said the size of a grain of mustard seed. He was just making the point by analogy, doesn't take much and it grows. And that seed that is born inside of you is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful. And God, the father is going to ensure that happens. Oh, you can cooperate with him and make it easier, or you can be uncooperative and he'll take you out behind the woodshed or as in my case, out behind the boy's outhouse on the edge of the ravine going down and where the white oak trees were and he'd tan my hide. Uh, But in either case, the perfect father gets what he wants. By the way, my father did not get everything he wanted out of me. Much to my, much to my disappointment too. Why? Because he wasn't the perfect father. He worked at it real hard. I'm, I tell people that don't like me, well, it'd be a lot worse. Just remember, it'd be a lot worse if my father hadn't at least tried to discipline me some. So be happy with, God, with what you got. Because I know some people that didn't get any of that. It, it makes it hard on a fellow. And then it's hard on me when I didn't get it. My mother would try to tune me up that way. And I would cry, not because it hurt. I just cry because I'd wanted to quit. So I'd go back to doing whatever it was she didn't like me to do. It didn't hurt a bit. She didn't have enough power to make it hurt. I didn't really care. Now, dad, that was a different story. He had the power to make it hurt. And I remembered it. It tuned me up. As he used to say, I'll tune you up. And you, <laughs> I won't say what else. In mixed company, but he he was very vivid in his description of what he would do, and uh, his father did that to him. Now his father had other problems. My granddad had other problems, um, but he did he did discipline my father. And the story Dad likes to tell more than any other, and uh, I wasn't there obviously. My dad was only seven years old when it happened, but every morning it was his job to go. He, they lived down the creek from where we live. It was his job. They lived in the bottom, and it was his job to get up in the morning uh, before school and go up in the holler and bring the cows down and run them into the barn so that they could be milked, and then they'd take the milk in the house, and Grandma would make gravy and, and breakfast. Well, he went up in the holler to get the cows, and the, and he'd take his dog with him. His dog had a Shep dog to go up behind him and nip their heels and bring them down. And the dog tried to go up on the high side of the holler and try to bring them down, like always. And they would kick at the dog and turn around and run the other way. And he said they were running and stumbling. And their heads would go into the ground like they were trying to butt the ground. And he kept trying to get them, just a little boy, trying to round up the cows with his dog, which they they got, they got knew the routine. They could have come down to the barn. He said he finally got them down to the barn after a long struggle. My granddad waiting for him, he said, and he tried to drive him through a 12-foot gate, and they'd miss the gate and run into the fence. And So Grandpa concluded that Dad had been worrying the cattle, what we call worrying the cattle. That means you torment them. You, know, you just torment the cattle till they get crazy, and you can't do anything with them. Well, that wasn't it at all. Finally got them in the barn and took double triple the time and got a milk after spilling a lot of it they couldn't get them tied up took the milk in the house and and uh, 
he said grandma made gravy and they tried to eat it and they couldn't eat it. So they finally concluded, and of course, dad got the whooping. That's the point I was wanting to get to. Dad got the whooping and they finally found out that the Robinson brothers who lived in a log house that still sets up above that holler, they had been making, they had been making illegal liquor. And, uh, the revenuers came to one of the brothers houses who lived a couple of miles away and arrested him. And he saw him coming and he gets on the telephone and calls his brother and his brother takes the mash out and dumps it over the fence down over the hill under the holler, and the cattle had been eaten and the cattle were drunk. That was back during prohibition. And that's how the, <laughs> he, he got a whooping, but, for the wrong reason, he probably deserved it anyway. But as, as parents say, well, if I made a mistake, you deserved it anyway. Well, that's probably true too, I suppose. But um, I know that he got some. Well, that's just a little bit of a story about the importance of the new birth and the discipline that will immediately come forthwith. Because the Bible says that God, do not despise, in the book of Hebrews, it says, do not despise the discipline, or as the old King James puts it, the chastening of the Lord. Because it says, it continues, he disciplines or chastens. That's what chastening means. Chasten is an old word that means purify. Purify. So discipline is intended to drive the evil out a little bit. And uh, it says that he disciplines every son he receives. The first thing he does is shows him who's boss. That's the first thing he does and that's not a bad method and he isn't messing around friends he's tough and it hurts and if you haven't had the discipline of the lord maybe have if you've had it well that's another good sign that you belong to him and that's the intention of that his discipline and it's tough it hurts and he's not messing around and by the way if you are born from above you're not going to get by with anything nothing. Don't try it. You wish you hadn't. Because he ain't messing around. And if you persist, if you persist in evil as one of God's men or women, he has shown us in the Bible that he'll even kill you and take you home. Take you off the playground. Just like the teacher used to do at school when children acting up, they'd take them off the playground. Make them come in the schoolhouse and sit. Well, God does that kind of thing, too. He does a lot of things. He does anything that he deems appropriate. And it's up to him, not up to us. Back to you, Roger. You know, um, as you were talking there, I kept flashing back on Dr. Spock and uh, all the things that happened that turned our society upside down in that 60s, late 50s, 60s era. And the uh, biblical statement of spare the rod and spoil the child and seeing how few people discipline their children anymore and uh, i i can't help but feel it leads to a lot of the situation that we're in today quite frankly oh i see it too roger uh, spock had a religious quirk he was uh his religion was evil yep and he didn't do good in school Apparently, he somehow got a doctor's degree. I remember my mother, somehow somebody gave her that book back when we were boys. And she was looking at it, and it said in there that if you take 
uh, different foods, like you could take Gerber baby food or something, put different ones on a plate or mashed potatoes, whatever, and hold it in front of your children, a little child sitting in a high chair, the child will instinctively stick his fist or his he'll grab at the food that his body naturally needs. In other words, his eyes, his instincts will grab at the food that his body needs. And so we thought, well, we'll, we'll find, we'll, we'll do an experiment here. So it was our job. We were not teenagers yet, but it was our job to, in the barn to scoop the manure out when it piled up into the manure spreader. And dad would take the manure spreader and he'd back her up to the barn door as one of these ground driven kind, you know, the wheels would turn, it would sling the manure out on the field. And, uh, We'd go in the barn. Cattle, you know, they'll they'll foul their nest quicker than about anything. Hogs won't. Hogs, they'll they'll have a, a latrine they'll use and they'll sleep where it's clean and they'll keep it clean. But cattle will they'll fill a barn plumb full of manure where they can't even get in, get in and out of the door. You don't scoop it out. But we we're scooping it out. Cattle and horses, both, by the way. Uh, we we had to scoop all that out. But we'd throw that in the manure spreader and we brought some in the house when mom wasn't looking our little brother we put <laughs> mashed potatoes on a plate and some manure and some other stuff just to see if this theory was true and my little brother yeah my little brother eric uh stuck his fist in the manure and ever since that experiment i've never given any thought to any credibility to dr that's, that's pretty funny bro you know it, it, yeah, it's funny, but it's it was it's funny to me now too. But it's it really told the truth. It told the truth. Let me uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Let me poll uh, uh, the folks on the board and see if anybody's got any comments or questions or anything. We've been kind of taking up the first hour here. Anybody got any observations, questions, analysis, or anything else? Well, we must be doing a good job. Roger, if I haven't said something by now, if I haven't said something by now that would elicit a comment. I'm surprised, but maybe they're just thinking. I don't know. I don't know. All I can do is oh, open mic. There's hi, somebody. Ellie. Hello. Who we got? <laughs> hi, this is Ellie, California. Oh, hey, Ellie. Brent, hi, this is everybody. this is one of our, uh, let me just tell Brent, uh, Ellie, because he's got roots out there where you are, that Ellie's one of our newer okay. listeners, and she's out in the Sacramento area. Oh, well, it's not that I have roots there as much as I lived in California off from on for 10 years, and I lived in Southern and Northern California, and I know what it's like in SAC. Yeah, I've been there a lot, but yeah, what's on your mind, Ellie? You know, I was listening to your story, and it brought me back to the days of my grandfather, my grandmother, and my dad telling me stories like that, and it really was the zinger at the end. Uh, the Dr. Spock and the shit and the, <laughs> the kid going for the shit instead. I, I, I just about almost peed my pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the silliness. And there's more of that uh, Spock, just more of that psycho babble. That's all it was. Yep. The study of man oh, as an animal. I remember that stuff. Yeah. So those were very formative yeah. years, you know. That, That's all I just wanted to make a comment. Hey, uh, in that time frame there, they had gotten the. Uh, they they'd gotten the two statuses equal with Brown v. Board, 
60 days later, the Internal Revenue Code of 54 was put in place, and then they came in with the Tavistock mm-hmm. Institute and all the all the music invasion, uh, R.V. Wade taking prayer out of the schools, Dr. Spock, all, all those initiatives came about in that time frame right there, best I remember. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, the uh, the Bohemian movement of the late 1800s morphed eventually into the beatnik movement of the fifties, which mm-hmm. morphed into the hippie hippie movement of the sixties and seventies. And it's always the same stuff, the same as dad used to say, every time you take your shovel and turn manure over, you just get more putridness. You can turn it over and over and over and just gets rottener and rottener and rottener. And that's the progression of social movements. And it is no, it is no accident who is behind the Bohemian movement, the beatnik movement, and the hippie movement. There's probably others in there of lesser uh, fame that I don't know about, but it all comes back to the same thing. Filth of mind and filth of body. That's all. It all comes back to that. And it is the practicality that we have to get to. I, have, I, was, I say often, the only remedy to lawlessness, and that's what we see around us, Jesus Christ said, depart from me. Ye practicers, practicers, that means they're working hard at it. That's what that word means. In the Greek tongue, uh, the word that practicers translate, practicers of lawlessness. Um, The only remedy for lawlessness is true law. That is the only remedy. I had a fellow say to me the other day, a Bible-believing Lutheran. He said, Brent, now wait a minute. He said, you say the only remedy to lawlessness is law, but really isn't, isn't the only remedy to lawlessness, Jesus Christ? I said, yes, of course it is. But everything that Jesus Christ is, is the law living. The law living. He is the man, the only man, the only good man whatever lived. I mean, perfectly good. He never once in thought or deed violated the will of God, the will of the sovereign, the law. He never did, and he never will. But because he was never a violator of law, he therefore was, and he was perfect of body, perfect of mind, perfect of soul. He was unblemished. Then therefore, and of course he was 100% God and 100% man, and that's not a contradiction. As a matter of logic, it's just a fact. But it is not a contradiction to say someone is 100% one thing and 100% another. Uh, he was, and he is, he remains that way. He still, he sits at the right hand, out of the right hand, to be precise, of God the Father, maker of all things. Right now, and he has been given all authority, all, not some, all authority on the land and in the sky to make all decisions in final instances. But right now, he has delegated the duty of government to us until he comes and, again, bodily. He's here now with us in spirit. He has a presence. Oh, yeah. He said so. He has a presence, but he is not bodily with us. Not. Not at all. Well, he will be. But um, all of this comes back to uh, law is the ultimate remedy because the, the goal of Jesus Christ, he is the answer, yes, but that must be understood. Oh, Jesus Christ is the answer. A lot of people say that. But they don't tell you what they mean by that. Well, what does it mean? It means that he, by his giving up of his life, has saved, brought safety, that is, to each of his people uh, for eternity. 
they will not suffer eternal hell. His people, not everyone, his people, whoever that may be. But in that, the goal of that is that we will bring the remedy to lawlessness to our lives and those around us. That's our job. That's the job of the remnant. If you don't know the will of God, if you don't know the law of God, where the Bible is the expression of his will, comes in many genres. It comes in history. It comes in biography like the Gospels. It comes in poetry like the five great poetic books of the Bible. It comes in apocalyptic literature like Daniel, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. It comes in Hebrew wisdom literature like the book of James, the book of Proverbs. That's all communicating to God's creature, us, his people, his will. And hey, that is the goal of him making us safe. And I want to hear what you're going to say, but let me quote one verse and then I'll quit. And then I want to hear you. Uh, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are ye saved, made safe through faith. And that not of yourselves, what not of yourselves? The grace of God and the faith of God are a gift from God. That's not of you. And then he says, not of works. And that you can't do anything to, to make it happen, like we were saying about the new birth. Why? Well, if you did have something you contributed to your safety eternally, then you can brag about it. So he says, lest any man can boast, for the purpose of, he says, good works. Now, go ahead. Yeah, Brent, you said recently the idea of somebody saying they just, you know, they just need more Jesus, need Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. And you said they don't explain what they mean. I'd uh -huh. submit they don't know what they mean. In fact, they're no, misdirected. No, I don't think they have any concept no, no, of what Christ actually is. It's a platitude. It's a raising hands. It's a feeling. It's all of these mm -hmm. sensual things that have nothing to do with him. The, the, the mm -hmm. essence of God made man and what he gave us direction to do on this earth. So, mm -hmm. you know, I agree they don't, they don't explain it, but I'd say they can't. And if they did, their explanation would be wholly inadequate. I have found that to be true in most cases, but I want to add this. You tell me if you've had this experience. Most people, and well, no, all people have difficulty uh, speaking their mind and making it clear. All people. All of us. Remember the old hymn says, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler and sweeter song I will sing thy power to save. But right now we're struggling just to make things known. I have found there are a lot of people that often say the exact opposite of what they really think and believe. And I listen. I don't. I try not to react because I know we all struggle to actually get our points across. And there are some people who will say that, like you were saying, that don't have a clue what they're saying. They're just repeating Christian speak. There are other people that say it really and having in their mind the truth, but never, never really able to communicate it. Some people, God has made communicators. Some people, God has made more doers. To some people, communicating is, is the doing that God gave them to do. Uh, and they don't, on the other hand, maybe they aren't producing as much as the fellow that doesn't communicate that much, but he produces a lot. And that's what God wants. But ultimately, all of us, course the end goal is that we he will we will do what he tells us to do and you cannot do that unless you know what it is he has said and you have the power behind that to make it happen that's the new birth Matthew I agree that some do 
get it, if you want to put it that way, understand what Christ's directives were to uh, look after your fellow man, you know, true religion. And James uh, says, you know, take care of the widows and orphans. And we know, uh, well, maybe we don't know. Maybe you need to go through that again, what widows and orphans actually means, as opposed to what it says, you know, the fatherless and the husbandless, which would include, of course, Mm -hmm. older women who've never married because their tie to society was through the dominant male of the family. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in our modern iteration, it seems, or multiple iterations of Christianity, in air quotes, we've entirely lost that. Mm -hmm. The government takes care of them. I pay my taxes. I'm going to go praise Jesus. (laughs) And I find that so And the government is going to deposit $6,000 in my bank account this month, and I don't even have to ask. That's going on right now. Yeah. That's going on. And, yeah. and women leaving their husbands because they don't need them anymore. The government is depositing money in their bank account. Yep. The government I'm is watching their husband, if you want to look at it. That that's way. it. That's it. Yeah, and it's they will deposit. rape you economically, physically. I'm t- it's ugly. I agree. Oh, you said dominant male, and I know what you mean by what you said because I've talked to you enough to know. But when I don't, I, the dominant male is the one God has ordained, whoever that may be, and it's a father or a husband, a father or a husband. And if a woman doesn't have a father or a husband, which you also talked about, I'd like to just flesh that out even more, then she's in a special category. And God says, don't offend her, look out for her. That takes a lot of patience and a lot of, well, it takes the spirit of God. It doesn't take something you work up in yourself. It takes a determination that God has given you, a determination to do what he says no matter what. It's not about a matter. Your, our honor is tied up in obeying the orders of our commander. That's our honor. Nothing else matters. Your life doesn't even matter. I say that with fear and trembling because that's a large order. But I know it's true. I know that's what the Bible says. And if you have not committed yourself to this thing that is greater than you, life will never be fulfilling to you. And there is nothing greater than you, according to God's word, nothing greater than you that's worthy except him. Go ahead. Well, that pretty much fleshed out what I wanted to comment on. I'll yield the floor. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I've mentioned it previously that we've had uh, several guys that have come through the political message here to what we're doing and um are talking about how they'd never had spirituality in their life before and how much of a void it was and that they can really of course when you get something you have not have it you can dr- dramatically see the difference and uh, how much they were fulfilled with the spirituality being in their lives now interesting comments mm-hmm. Hey, Brent? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. This is Doug. I found it interesting. It sparked a uh, one of my brain cells that's still left here. Uh, when you mention lawlessness, you know, to me that goes to depravity, which man is kind of is um, infested with. Uh, but mm-hmm. when as I, from my studies, uh, the word licentiousness comes up to me. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? Lawlessness equals. Well, of course, yeah, I think that. Yeah, I, I get that, and the Bible translates um, using that word to get that concept. But I, 
in my translation, I try to avoid uh, Latin-based words. So I see. <laughs> I know all. Yeah. yeah, we all know all. I said, but it's just a thing. I, I I'm looking for another word. Lawlessness, licentiousness means that I get to do whatever I want as long as I get permission. If the government says I can murder my own children, well, that's okay. That's licentiousness. I, Way I take yeah, it. that's Go what ahead. sparked my interest uh, in, in comment coming yeah. here is, see, in the word licentiousness is the word license. Okay, it's yeah. embedded in it. And, and that yeah. is the definition of um, getting a license to do something that's forbidden, that's not allowed. That's interesting, Doug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but on the other hand, uh, I'm sorry, Doug, go ahead. No, no, I, uh, that was my thought. Okay. Uh, to, be, to be more precise, uh, I often say that no man has a right to do wrong. What is license? License is permission or permission from who? who? If your permission from God is authority. Mm. Permission from government may or may not be good authority, uh, it depends on whether or not government has authority to issue that kind of permission. So to start again with the fundamentals, all permission, all authority, all license, all jurisdiction, all warrant, those are all synonyms that stress different aspects of the same concept called authority. In English, we just say right. All of that, without exception, comes from the creator of all things, Romans chapter 1. And it is delegated then from him either directly to men or to another man through men indirectly, but it's all from him. Anything that is authority is true authority. There's no such thing as false re- authority. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Authority is authority. Either you have it, it's from God. Either you have it or you don't have it. Therefore, for example, and I use this illustration, I would had a client once who made a living selling Nazi, Nazi stuff. Stuff that the Nazis had, emblems, uniforms, mm-hmm. papers, documents. He collected them from all over the world at a small warehouse, and he sold them and made money. And he knows a lot about the history of World War II and, and Nazi and all. He, I, and we were talking one time, and he said, well, you know, the German legislature gave Hitler that authority. I said, well, I understand your point. But no, the German legislature did not give Hitler authority to do all the things he did. What do you mean? Well, the German legislature, no man has a right to do wrong. It is impossible that anybody could give authority to anybody else that they never got in the first place. God never, the authority to do some of the things that Hitler did, for example, taking all power to himself, that to start, that was, God doesn't give authority to any mortal to do that. And he, that was just a ruse. They, they said, we're giving you the authority. If they had authority, that single power to do that, the legislature, where did they get such authority? The answer is they didn't have it. And you cannot impart what you do not possess. I can't give authority to someone to do something that, um, that they have that is wrong, that is unlawful. Uh, no man, here's the maxim, no man has a right to do wrong. No man can have a right to do wrong. That is impossible as a matter of law. So I try to talk, and although I know what people mean, they say, well, uh, he had authority to do that. That's why he did it. Just because the Supreme Court says that people, uh, doctors have authority under the Constitution to murder babies in and out of the womb doesn't mean it's true. 
um, that's it's worse than licentiousness because license means permission. It means authority. Well, if that's what it means, uh, it's not true. It's claiming. It's to put it this way: it's a false flag. It's claiming you have delegated authority when you don't. And by the way, just to take it one step further, the commandment there: all of the will of God can be categorized under ten headings, sometimes overlapping. We call those ten headings the Ten Commandments. That covers all of the will of God. And everything in the Bible and outside the Bible can get, can be categorized under one of those ten, or if not two or three of them, in different ways. And, and I the, think you, the, you mentioned... The standard... I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, you no, go no, ahead. I'll take it. Well, well, the standard... Okay. The standard that says false. <laughs> Let me finish this, and I'll stop. I'm sorry. Yeah, the standard. The standard that says false authority, false flag, is the one that says, "Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain." The name? Yeah, that's a, a word that means authority. Shame in Hebrew, translated name. To to do something in the name of another person is to do it in their authority, to be their agent, to have a power of attorney, as it were, from them. So if you take the name, the authority of the Lord your God to no purpose, that Hebrew word shua, nothingness, to vain, to emptiness, without authority, that's a false flag. That's what that means. That doesn't mean don't say, don't say cuss words. Doesn't mean that. Don't say the name of God. Don't say God like the Jews say. That's all Kabbalistic demonism. That has nothing to do with what it says there. It says, you shall not take the named authority of God to no purpose. And if you're saying God told me to do this, when God doesn't give you any authority to do that, what did Jesus Christ say? Referring to that, he said, many of you will say, did not we cast out demons? Did not we do all these wonderful works? And what will Jesus Christ say to them? In your name, they say. And he, said, he will say to them, depart from me, ye practicers of lawlessness. You had no authority to do what you're saying you did. Be very careful, friends, neighbors, and kin. If you don't have solid, unambiguous demonstration from the revealed will of God for what you're doing, don't claim to be doing it in his name because he won't like it. He's not playing. He plays, by the way, his authority is wholly other. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy named authority is separate and holy for a special purpose. And I'm to be very careful to claim, oh, God's on my side. I hear people say that. I cringe and tremble. I heard somebody say it on the other day, and they were Christian folk trying to do the, the moral thing. Well, we know God's on our side. No, you don't. What you better be concentrating on is you getting on God's side. Because God may, may not be on your side or the other fellow's side. You may be claiming the name, the authority of God. If you can't quote the Bible, let me put it just clear. If you can't quote the Bible point blank, unambiguously, for what you're doing and what you're claiming is God's authority, don't do it. You better stop first, all of us, and say, we're going to do nothing till we've gone back and looked at this book and discovered for clear, unambiguous purposes what we're doing here. Well, God told me. No, he didn't. He didn't speak to you in your head. He may have showed you how to apply what God has said in his written word, but he didn't give you any new law to tell you what to do. The Bible says he doesn't do that. The Bible says he gives us 
His revealed will, the laws of nature unwritten in nature, and the laws of nature of God written in, in his word, and then he shows us by the illuminating power of his spirit how to apply that in individual instances. But he didn't give you any new law, any new revelation of his will. He may have, but he does illuminate. Yes, he does. Illuminate it to us by the spirit he has given us. So we know how it applies in individual instances and in the individual circumstances of our lives moment by moment. Go ahead, Doug, and I'll take a breather. Thank you. I sure enjoy your, uh, your sharings. Uh, the Father, in my experience and estimation and etc., is that we're called, we're commanded to fear him. And, and that includes respect, learn, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. Uh, so that we can understand and fear him. Not out of a, 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 a scary thing, but because he is the creator and he created everything and he designed it. He has a plan. His plan is going to be, has been, and it's going to be accomplished to the letter of what he's designed. So, uh, I think, from my perspective, what he wants, he wants us to, to know his law, if you will, his will, and then whatever may come, you put everything aside. Family, you know, wife, children, even yourself, your propensities aside to ask him for help to become the man or woman that he wants us to be and then become faithful at doing that. Come hell or high water, no matter what. And I don't think anybody can actually do that unless uh, you study his word and um, arrange your thoughts, your actions to um, agree with and carry out faithfully for, from the day you begin in this uh, born again born from above realization till your last breath. That's what we're called for. I'm done. Why? I see. No, I see your point, and I agree, of course. We're called, this. it's an artificial, I've heard this all my life, and it's an artificial structure to say, God first, family second. You know, you heard people say that. Put things in priority order. No, if you put your family second, you, you haven't put God first. To put God first, for instance, is to just do what he tells you to do. It all comes down to his will, the will of the sovereign, his law. How do you want to honor God? You honor his will. You honor his word. You don't blaspheme his word. You don't talk disparagingly about what he has shown us unwritten in nature and what he shows us in the Bible. We had a fellow on here was. Um, speaking on this show that's been a few months ago i remember i was had, i was trying to get a signal and i was up in the mountains trying to drive around finding a place i could get a signal but during i remember where i was when it happened but 
he was derogatory toward the revealed will of God. That is not to be tolerated. And if anyone tolerates that in their presence without saying something, say, no, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. That's, that's blasphemous. I'm, I don't want to be a part of that. And I don't want to be around it to talk, to blaspheme God's word. His revealed will is to blaspheme him. How do I disrespect my earthly father? Just ignoring his will, what he tells me to do. That's called disrespect. You do that to God, you could just be passive, and most people are. They're passive about the Word of God. They do not respect it. They will allow others to speak evil of it in their presence. God ain't going to tolerate that out of his children. Not even a little bit. I remember one time when I was about 14, we were on the Bennett place. It was in the summer. We were planting. Dad had an Alice Chalmers WD-45. That was his planting tractor. That tractor had to be running all the time. That tractor he took care of. That was like having a horse, you just couldn't afford to be lame because you couldn't do your farming without the planting track. And you had a little four-row, a John Deere, or a Oliver. It was an Oliver planter at that time, and, a, and an Alice Chalmers tractor. It was late at night. We were planting, and, and Jim Gard, who had a piece, a 60-acre piece, cross the road. Jim, <clears throat> we were joined at the hip with the guards down there in the bottom for generations. We knew him, and Jim came to Dad Stopped him at the end of the field. It was late at night. He was trying to finish that piece. I was there, and he said, uh, um, Junior, he said, when you get this done, I'm asking you to come over and plant this other piece over here because my tractor's broke down, and I can't do it. And he said, will you do that? And Dad said, yes, I will, Jim. Jim and Dad were born, they had the same birthday. Jim Gard would call Dad at 4 o'clock. Every, every time Dad's birthday came around, Jim would get up at 4 and call Dad on the telephone, get him out of bed and wish him happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> torment him. Well, Dad said that. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm maybe 13, 14, 12 to 14. And uh, Dad was over there planting. It was reaching midnight. I was standing there with Jim, and we were helping Dad fill the the planter boxes in the field. And, and, uh, I said something that Jim didn't like about dad. I can't remember what it was. And Jim detected in me a comment of disrespect. It wasn't any big deal, but made Jim mad. And Jim said, you ain't going to talk that way about your dad around me. And I thought, well, I didn't say anything. And what it came down to was just something I dad said that had to be done. And maybe it was about how to fill the buckets with the beans. I don't remember. We had to fill the buckets. That was before they, we had to make our own. We saved back our own seed in those days. And uh, boy, Jim, Jim jumped on my case right now. And he was older than me, about twelve years older, and bigger than me. Of course, I was a boy. I said, okay. I didn't back talk him. Well, I, that single act of that man, who couldn't, Jim. <laughs> well, I won't say this, but uh, like the rest of us, Jim had problems. But God used Jim to teach me a lesson that night about midnight. And to and what he taught me was this, without probably even understanding he was doing it. He just wasn't going to tolerate it. To disparage the will, the spoken will of my father, is to be disrespectful of my father. Well, if it's true of my earthly father, how much greater infinitely is it true of the maker of all things? The one who holds the power of life and death over us, the power of nations, the power over nations, I should say, to kill and to make alive. Well, I'm just trying to pass it along to you. Let's be careful. 
We are not to allow ever the disparaging of God's revelation of his will to us. Because to do so, that's the fundamental way of disrespecting anybody. <laughs> I can give you other examples. I think I told the example of the time that another fellow who was older than me slammed me up against the bulkhead and told me what I would do and what I wouldn't do. And out of that, I got a letter of commendation and I didn't deserve it because I just did what he told me to do after he physically threatened me. He told me what to do, I did it, and I got a letter of commendation from the old man. And I, I didn't deserve it, he deserved it. Like Jim Gard deserves, deserves commendation if I respect my father. Well, I had that happen, the same thing there. Uh, I was speaking disparagingly at that point about the revealed will, which is in the military, you call that a command. The revealed will of the old man. And this other fellow, who was probably 12, 15 years older than me, that made him very old in my eyes. He physically threatened me and made it good and told me what I would do and what I wouldn't do because I was being disrespectful to the will of the old man. Again, that doesn't amount to pinch and dried owl manure compared to the will of the maker of all things. Are we going to sit by idly and allow other people to disparage his will? and discourage other people from his will? No, we aren't going to do that. And if we do do that, we will suffer the consequences. So don't do it. I don't want you to suffer the consequences. He'll take you to the woodshed pretty quick. And I've learned that over the years. I pass it on to you for what it's worth. Well, back to you, Roger. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. I was thinking as you were saying that about an incident that happened here about a year ago, I think, after... Uh senile biden got in there and this bunch of crooks started running the country and you know this fat slob jerry nadler um i'm sure you oh know. he's uh yeah the jewish fellow from new york city yeah right and uh some uh, something he, he was up at the the well in the house and something came up about god and he said there is no god in this house well i've heard him say those kind of things it just uh, just really turned my stomach, you know. Oh yeah. Well, here's what you do with people like that. You better clear. You might, if somebody was there, they should have said something. But you better clear out away from them because the judgment could fall. I don't know when or how other people make mistakes. I've made mistakes. God will correct your mistakes if you're born from above. Your eternal salvation is eternal. That's why we call it eternal life. He's going to straighten you out. He's going to make what's crooked straight. Don't worry about that, but it could be real painful. Don't, don't make it hard on yourself. But well, with, with people like that, that we, you don't know. You better, you better get away from him because when the judgment falls, if it falls, if it falls on him, I don't want it falling on me too. Back to you. I couldn't stand to be, I couldn't stand to be within the same state with that creep, really. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. just such a bloated, uh, I mean, the guy looks like he's ready to, well, some of you might have seen the, the video that was put out where it looked like he pooped his pants and he was just walking away. But what I want to say is in um, respect to the topic of uh, the first duty of man is to fear the Lord type of uh, message here because the Old Testament is replete with 
things that, quote, Israel as a group did when it wasn't authorized by the Father, when they already had this system set up, you, you seek him first to see if it's okay. And tens of thousands of Israelites were ended up dead. And the 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 power of him, the, the love see I look at him as just the best, the goodest, okay? Uh just wonderful but it's because he is that and his will has to be followed to the letter if you if anyone has that entrance to him and if you do then just follow it I mean Moses look what happened to Moses striking the rock twice instead of once uh, all these examples Moses was you know, a friend knew him face to face, but the the specificities of his word are there. He, he doesn't he doesn't say something or plan something that isn't supposed to be carried out to the letter. Next, if if we if anyone realizes that, then. That's the uh, what I'm saying about the fear of him, because he will let you know. I mean, when he Moses wasn't a lightweight, so he was supposed to know when the Father said, "Speak to the rock." That's what he was supposed to do. However, he got distracted. He never got into the promised land from that, and with everything that's going on now with COVID, etc. Uh, who are you going to, um, what should one uh, hang their bet uh, um, on? <laughs> well, it's only him, right? And he's so good and loving and wonderful and forgiving and gracious that, uh, but, Many are called, but few chosen. The invitation is given to many, not everybody, but many. But the ones who are the overcomers, who are faithful, who have, um, I won't say sacrifice, but we make a choice. I'm going to follow this come hella high water. I'm serving him. I need him to direct me, etc. That's where I'm hanging. That's what I'm going to do. And in all that, uh, in all that, if uh, of course we must make that decision. But if we don't make the proper decision and we are born from above, God will still get what he wants out of us. He will discipline us to it. Now, if there's anybody out there that disagrees with my point of view, uh, I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. And if you don't realize that, then you need to study it harder. It's not like it's unclear. It's not like it's ambiguous. This is the point of view that those who founded our country understood and took. The Puritans, the Presbyterians, and the German and Dutch reform groups. Uh, that made up pretty near a 95 to 98% of the population. 
and that was the official doctrine, regardless of how maybe they didn't all agree with it, but that was the official doctrine, and that is clearly what the Bible teaches. But to make one other point, I've listened to Justice Scalia, and Justice Scalia was a gracious man. He was a Romanist, of course, a hardcore Romanist. And I heard him one time talking about a judge that he knew, a close friend of his, who was uh, a Presbyterian, and he was a Canadian. And he talked about how this man enjoyed and went to church at a place where the preacher spoke in the harshness of the Presbyterian faith. And the Presbyterian faith, of course, originally was very biblical and it was very harsh. John Knox, of course, uh, the leader of the Reformation in Scotland, was the one that had an iron collar around his neck for four and a half years and was a galley slave at the behest of the Roman Pope in, in a, a French warship. And he was a man who thundered the judgment of God. And as I get older, I, and that's what Justice Scalia was making fun of. He was doing it in a very polite way, but he was making fun of it. That's dumb. Uh, I wonder what he thinks about all that now. I don't know, and I like Justice Scalia. But it doesn't make any difference who we are, whether we're right-headed or wrong-headed. Do not demean those or do not demean the word of God and those that would truly communicate it. Judgment, friends, neighbors, and kin is coming to those that are not born from above. Discipline is coming to those that are, and it's harsh. So make it easy on yourself. This is the message that is missing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of useful knowledge called chachma, wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. And if you're not afraid of him, there's something wrong with you. Now, a while ago, and I've heard people say, well, I don't want to be afraid of him. It's a different kind of thing. The Yerath Yahweh of the Older Testament, that's the Hebrew phrase, Yerath Yahweh, fear of Yahuwah, fear of the Lord. Oh, it includes fear. Oh, yeah, being afraid, it includes that. And if you're not afraid of him, afraid of him as a loving father who could really make your life miserable, and put a discipline on you that is extremely painful. When my father snapped his fingers in church, oh yeah, fear, fear of a lot of, fear of embarrassment before others, fear of pain. Oh, my father was worthy being afraid of. Was he kind? Did he hold me in his arms? Oh, I remember all that too. I remember he took care of me, he fed me. Everything he did, I asked him the other day, how did you do that, dad? How did you do, he's 95 now. How did you do that? I said, the work. I remember he went through ulcers, worried about everything, going broke, not being able to provide. He thought he was going to die. He almost left the family, he told me. I said, how did you do that? You know what he said to me? He said, I counted it a privilege. I counted it a privilege to take care of my family. Not everybody even gets that chance. That's true. Some men are thrown in jail, and the government, the evil empire, deprives them of that privilege. I've had that happen to me. So I understand dad's statement. But my point to you is a loving father, if he's truly a loving father, he is a disciplinarian and you are a hard case. And if you're not afraid of that discipline, then you're not going to react the way you should. God brings that fear to you. The fear of the, I had a guy tell me once, he was a Hebraist. His name was Richard Rigsby. Um, he was one of the translators of the New King James translation of the Bible. Maybe you don't like that translation, but he did know the Hebrew tongue. He said, Brent, if you ever understand 
the phrase of the Older Testament that often appears, Yirath Yahweh, or I would say Yirath Yahuha, Yirath Yahuha, translated fear of the Lord. If you ever understand that phrase, there's not much else in the Bible to understand because everything arises out of that. Oh, I don't disagree with him now after having looked at it over the years because it is important that we fear what God can do to us and what he will do to us if we don't straighten up our act, if we act wrongly, if we disobey him, if we ignore him, ignore his will. Are you in the Bible every day? Do you look at it a little bit? Do you try to go back and see what your orders are? Well, if, you know, when I was a, when I was a military man, they used to point at the orders of the day, appoint them. They used to post them. They would post them every day, wherever I was, unless we were out to where we couldn't see them, but when you're back at the home base, they'd be on the bulletin board and you were required every day to read the orders of the day put out by the officer of the day. I did it. Why? Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to make my life miserable. That's why. If I would do it with something as pissy ante as a military organization that was controlled by a government that was at least half the time, I took it serious. Why wouldn't I take it serious? Again, with the maker of all things, the judge, as our Declaration of 76 says, the supreme judge of all the world, would I read his orders every day? Read something out of his book every day. And try to do it systematically. In other words, just start at the beginning of the book and try to read through it. Just like brushing your teeth, you do it every day. If you take it serious, back to you, Rod. Let me see if anybody else has any uh, comments on what we've covered today we'd love to hear from you if you do i got a i got a question or samuel what it is really samuel (laughs) hey brent i uh you know i always i think it's sort of weird things sometimes and i was i was like trying to put myself in somebody else's shoes and then uh you know sort of have a feeling for what i might do well I'm going to put this back to, you know, this guy Hitler. He, I think he loves this country, right? He struggles. He gets the power. He gets the Kaiser, which is Caesar, right? Uh, supporting him because that guy thinks the country needs help too. They're willing to go to some great extremes like, uh, well, I think this country is probably very much like uh, the state of Germany was in at the at that time. And, uh, the first thing he does when he does get into power, he uh, he eliminates uh, pornography, he eliminates interest, and vivisection. So, if he was willing to eliminate vivisection, he would be willing to eliminate abortion. So, you take a guy like this, right, and um, if we had that kind of guy in this country... I think there'd be a lot of camps and a lot of hangings for all the people who have committed treason and have brought this country down. What do you say to that? God God won't allow that. God will not allow all three branches of government to be gathered into the hands of a single man except one, and that's Jesus Christ, and he says so. And that's how Saul, King Saul, lost his kingdom because he tried to fulfill all three functions functions of government and that's clearly what happened to him and god said and sent the prophet said i will rip the kingdom from you that is an imitation of the messiah 
God will not tolerate the Pope of Rome doing what he is doing and all the popes before him claiming that they have all the power of God on earth and they are, they are the vice regent of Jesus Christ. They are standing in his place, anti-Christ. The Bible says anti-Christ, that preposition is equivalent in our tongue to instead of Christ. Antichrist means a man like the Pope of Rome. He declares himself antichrist. That just as an example. And there are many examples of it throughout the world. Adolf Hitler claimed to be the last court of resort in his country from whose decision there is no appeal. He didn't call himself the, the maker, the god of all things, but in effect he was. The emperor of Japan was under the same code as Hitler, the code of Bismarck. The code of Bismarck, Bismarck the Roman emperor, of the century before put the code of Justinian of the Roman Empire into force in Germany, and that set the stage for Hitler. The emperor of Japan had that same code. They took that same German code, and that gave license, <laughs> false license, I guess, to the emperor of Japan to say, I'm God, and there is no appeal before me. And if anybody looks at me from a window as I go down the street, he is to be killed. But fundamentally... There was no difference between the emperor of Japan and Adolf Hitler. They just, in, in Japan, or in Germany, Hitler couldn't get away with saying, I'm God, because it was a Christian world, a Romanism. He was a Romanist, by the way, so he was real comfortable with the idea, and the people in Bavaria were comfortable with that idea. The people in the north of Germany were not as much, the Lutherans. And, of course, there were mixes out throughout the country of that. But, no, God's not going to, God is not playing, God he drove King Saul to madness and suicide over that question. Would we think the, the king that he put in place for his purposes? Do you think that's going to happen to us? He's going to give us a break. And are we stupid enough to think that we're going to trust one man with that kind of power? There are a lot of right-headed men out there. If I were in power, I'd try to do that. But I'm not going to accept that kind of power because I know God won't allow it. Again, it's knowing what the revelation of his will is and what we're going to allow. In Germany, they allowed it because the Romanists in Germany, of which there was over half the country, they were comfortable with the idea. Remember, the dominant religious institutions of a country, the government of those institutions, will be the government of that country. That's why all of South America are dictatorships, because they're comfortable with that and the religious institutions and their deepest convictions of their heart of hearts. The Pope of Rome is emperor. Same thing is true in Mexico and South America. The same thing is true in all of the communist countries. And all false religions are fundamentally dictatorships of a single will that the people recognize, whether of a, a true will, of a living thing, or a dead thing. That's what it is. It comes back to the same thing. Babylonianism. So no, uh, we'd be fools in America to allow our common law government, which means separation of co-equal powers of government to be gathered into the hands of a single will. England tried it after the revolution. They were going to get rid of the king, said Parliament. The Puritans controlled Parliament. They got rid of the king. And then Parliament said, we're sovereign. And in England yet today, Parliament is sovereign, a single will. And after that, of course, things got worse. Then they, they got out of hand again, and they invited the son of the king they had executed back in the power, and he turned around then and executed all the people that executed his father. And the madness goes round and round. It revolves. That's why we call it revolutionary culture. 
It never stops revolving. We get to America. We gained our independence. Some of the states, a few of the states were stupid enough to say, well, the legislature is going to be in, in control in our state, not the governor. We're tired of this idea of one man show. So they thought the legislature could do it. But what they forgot was it already been tried in England. It didn't work. The single will of a legislature is worse than the single will of a, of a dictator. It gets worse. Well, they tried it and it didn't work. So all of our states are back to, well, we're going to spread the power out a little bit. We're going to have juries because if we don't have juries and three co-equal branches of government and, and a lot of other ways, independent land ownership, but more ways than we could count that we spread power in our common law tradition. And it works because men cannot be trusted with power. One of the great Roman Catholics, smart man, Roman Catholic, hardcore Roman Catholic of Britain. His name was Lord Dalberg Emmerich Acton. He's the man that said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, he didn't say that in a vacuum. He said that about the Pope of Rome. Why? Because the Pope of Rome during uh, during his life, back in the 1850s, made uh, a bull officially officially official. It had always been the the understanding, but he made it officially official that when he speaks, when his haunches, his buttocks, are parked on the wooden chair, the throne of the Lateran Palace, that preserved him from ever making a mistake when he speaks. The doctrine of ex cathedra, Latin for out of the cathedra, out of the cathedral, out of the throne. Cathedra means throne, the throne place. When he speaks out of the throne, he can't make a mistake. Acton went on to say, criticizing the Pope for that, He went on to say there is no doctrine as monstrous as the doctrine that says that the office sanctifies the man. Well, that's what Romanism is. That's that's the feeling and the doctrine that the evil empire wants us to have here in America. The office sanctifies the man. Therefore, you can't sue the man in office. Why? He's sanctified. He can can do no wrong. He's untouchable. He has immunity, sovereign immunity. The word sultan, sultan in the Islamic culture means sovereign immunity. You can't touch him. The kings of England said that. Henry VIII said that. He went down in a common law country. Charles I said that. They cut his head off. His son said that. They went after him. James I of King James Bible fame said that. Had the King James translation done primarily to promote the idea that the king is untouchable, he can do no wrong, he answers to no man on earth, he only answers to God and in this life after. This whole doctrine of the single will, a God equivalent to God on earth, that's what the Pope says. Vicar of Christ, that means in place of Christ. Vicar of Christ is the Latin equivalent of Antichristos of the New Testament said four times in the New Testament. What is an Antichrist? It's not one who comes along and said, I'm against Christ. No, it's one that comes along and said, hey, I have the authority of Jesus Christ. I have all authority of Jesus Christ in my bailiwick. The Pope of Rome says that of the Church of Rome. The, the, the crown holder of England says that of all the Church of England. I, I'm in charge here. Whatever I say is the law. I'm in the place of Christ. I'm Antichrist. I'm vicar of Christ. That's what all the television evangelists say, or a television, or the mega churches. That's what they say in their churches. That's what a lot of the Baptist churches say. In my church, I'm the law. I've heard Baptists say that. I've heard Assembly of God churches say that. The prophet of the Mormon church says that. That is Antichrist. Hitler was Antichrist. Um, the emperor of Japan, Antichrist. 
John the Apostle says there are many antichrists among you. And I can look around today, the emperor of South Korea, emperors of South America, antichrist. That's what an antichrist is. And that is the biblical definition. John Knox, again, leader of the Reformation in Scotland, the first presentation he made at the castle there at St. Andrews when they were, just before he, the, the French fleet captured him at the behest of Rome, he, he delivered a message on what Antichrist is, according to the Apostle John. He's the one that uses that term four times, Antichristos. And he defined what that is. Having been trained in the Latin tongue, he was a former Roman priest, he understood it. He said Antichrist is instead of Christ. That's what that means, and that's the way it should be translated. What is an Antichrist? He's one who claims to stand in the place of Jesus Christ with all of the authority of Jesus Christ in his jurisdiction. In his jurisdiction, France. For instance, Hitler said, there is no appeal for my decision. I just declared war on the United States. There is no appeal. That was a stupid thing to do. People that have that may be right-headed at the beginning, like some people say Hitler is and did a lot of good things. He turned Germany around. He did all that. He tried to get rid of the Jewish influence that was promoting pornography and promoting uh, sale of drugs and and all sorts of things, too, too numerous and too ugly to mention, more than pornography, prostitution, pedophilia. The pedophilia was so thick in Weimar, Germany, you walk outside the hotels and they would accuse the customers saying if they wanted the services of this child or that child. And he knew who was behind it. It was paganism, the paganism of, uh, of Judaism. And the people that practiced Judaism were the ones who were primarily promoting it. That's a fact of history. It's not debatable. But still... You can't solve the problems that you have, like in America, by doing it other than God's processes and ways. That is, Hitler did not do it by God's way. And that's what our common law is. Our common law stresses a process, we call it due process. We do it his way or we don't do it at all. And if we tried it, that's why Jesus Christ didn't say, I'm a list of laws and I'm gonna come in and smash everything. No, he said, I want you folks to understand something. I am the way, W-A-Y. That odos in the Greek tongue there means roadway. I'm the, I'm the roadway you follow, the course of process you follow, uh, the most popular book in the English-speaking world. When it came out, more, oh, second only to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. A Puritan, a Puritan wrote the book, and uh, he understood that. He understood that the Christian life is a path you get on, a process. We call it due process at common law. Magna Carta called it the law of the land. Our Constitution calls it the supreme law of the land. It's not substantive law. It's how we go about doing things. It's all about fairness. It's about the way, the path, as the Old Testament puts it, God has set forth. Roger, I believe we're at the end of the show. We're right there towards the end. Uh, Brent and I, uh, I always, uh, we run late so much. Uh, why don't you be sure and tell folks how they can get more of you, get a hold of you, and all that kind of stuff. I will do that. Roger, thanks, but I'm going to wrap this up. David, David would not do what Hitler would have done. David had every opportunity to king, kill King Saul. Saul. God had anointed David king of Israel, but he waited. He waited for God's process for five years. Uh, that's the kind of attitude. I know it's rough, but that's the attitude that God commands us to take. Well, 
Uh, and we will have a better result in the end. Anything other than that is nothing but pure re- uh, revolution. And it never comes to a good end. You can look at it in history. This is Brent Howland Winters. Thank you. By the way, everybody talked and participated and brought things up. I appreciate it. It gives me opportunity to respond, and then you can respond back. I'm sorry we're out of time because I want to hear responses to what I just said. Um, Thanks, Brent. CommonLawyer.com. Well, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, CommonLawyer.com. Go to the website, CommonLawyer.com. Sign up for the course. We're going to start on the 3rd of uh, February, Thursday morning. You can see there the times, how to sign up for the course on the grand jury. I'm going to include the pettit jury at common law. These are common law creatures. The juries do not exist anywhere else in the world. And the law of the city world, which is the rest of the world. And also, Sheriff Darleaf, who co-taught the sheriff's class with me, is going to be on there with me, uh, teaching that class too and making comments. And I'm glad to have him. And also, you can find there the winterized version of the Bible, as some call it, and affectionately. A common lawyer translates and annotates, translate the Bible from the original tongue, the Aramaic, the Greek, and the Hebrew, and, uh, and annotates over 15,000 footnotes, 135 appendices. You can get that there in digital form, four volumes in printed form. Uh, also, uh, the, the comparative law text, Excellence of the Common Law, you can get that there, 958 pages comparing and contrasting the law of the land and the law of the city on every continent. And in every age, and then other books on the Fifth Amendment, the jury, the Fourth, the fourth Amendment, and uh, the Militia of the Several States, a book on the militia clauses of our U.S. Constitution. And um, I'm on the radio, I think, every day, and it tells you there how to listen Thank you, Roger. Thank you all. Okay, we just got knocked off the server.